Well, today we finish up the series, Kosher Hearts, Gentile Faith, and Yet Another Picnic. And this is the Yet Another Picnic uh, portion of that. Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 15, as it has for the past three weeks. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through 39. In this church, we believe the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only standard that we have to live our lives and to carry out our faith. So listen as we read God's Word this morning. Verse 29 from chapter 15 of Matthew. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 beside women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got in the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. I realized this, well, actually last week when I was uh, preparing this message, that this is the third time in six months that I have spoken to you about loaves and fishes. I don't know what it is. I don't know what God's trying to teach me about the loaves and fishes. At the end of the summer, we had an occasion where we were between series, and I chose to do the feeding of the 5,000. I actually thought that that, um, the feeding of the 5,000, as recorded in Matthew, came a little bit later in Matthew, and I thought I had plenty of time to to recover from that. But I didn't. We came across the portion of Scripture in Matthew 13, I believe, Uh, about feeding of the 5,000. It was Walt's turn to do it, and he had back surgery, so I did that week. And now here we are again, and this was Walt's turn again to do the feeding of the 4,000, and now he's the children's pastor. So, you know, I get get stuck with the... uh, Not stuck with, but I get to do the... uh, the um, feeding of the 4,000. And as I'm preparing, I'm thinking, what else can we say about this? We've already exhausted everything to say in in the first uh, two sessions that we did, even though that was 5,000 and this is the 4,000, which is a different story, but you would think that the principles might be the same. But 
God is good to show us some new things uh, from His Scripture that maybe we can bring to you today. I went, I went to the movies back in the summer. It was a rainy day, and I went by myself. It was a three-dimensional movie. Three-dimensional, you, you know what I'm talking about. Three-dimensional movie. We think those are new, but there's nothing new about three-dimensional movies. Matter of fact, I understand that in the beginning of movies, back when there were black and white and when they had no sound, no, I don't remember those myself, uh, not firsthand anyway, but they had 3D movies then. So this isn't something that's brand new to us. It's, it's been brought around again probably as a novelty for, for young people, I guess. Uh, but I went to see this 3D movie, and I'm sorry to say I can't, can't even tell you what the movie was. I know it was a cartoon. Um, I, I was trying this week to remember what cartoon it was, and I, and I don't. The only thing I remember is that as I was sitting there, things in the screen were coming at me, you know, and all around me here, and it was as if you could reach out and try to, try to touch the things that were happening. And, of course, this 3D trick only works if you put on some special glasses, some 3D glasses, which, which they supply for you at the theater for a nominal fee of about $3.50. Otherwise, you sit there in the the movie and um, the the screen's blurred. Uh, Eventually, you're going to get a headache. It just just doesn't work the other way. So you're almost commanded to have those 3D glasses to experience what's happening there. And it's the same thing if you're reading great literature. If you're reading uh, any sort of literature, you have to put on glasses. And I'm not talking about reading glasses. I'm talking about those lenses that you put in your mind to kind of filter what's, what you're reading. It doesn't matter whether the great literature you're reading is the Bible or whether it's Chaucer or Shakespeare or, or Mark Twain or, or my uh, latest, greatest favorite, Eric Van Lustbader, who is the writer of all the Jason Bourne uh, novels. You've got to look at it through the eyes of the writer. What did he intend for you to see? This passage in Matthew 15 is, is really no different. It's the same case in point. Matthew 15, the story of Jesus' response here to the Canaanite woman that, that Walt taught us about last week. It's followed directly by this healing passage and then by a feeding of a huge multitude of people that had come for the healings. And it says in this account, the crowds brought to Jesus the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others. We don't know what the many others are, but I would assume with any affliction they maybe had, they brought to Jesus. And then we have his feeding of 4,000 people near, near the Sea of Galilee. As I told you in the last two instances of this, we're only counting men in that 4,000. So, of course, you would have women and children, and this number of 4,000 could easily be 15,000. 15,000 people that he's feeding. Matthew's already given us a good many stories of, of healings and demonstrations of the Spirit's power and how, how Jesus worked in this instant and that instance. Why in the world does he have to add this one to to his book to lengthen the the pages in that uh, gospel of Matthew? 
But I'm thinking maybe if we put on our special glasses this morning and look at the Scripture, maybe we can see a little more clearly what the point of this story is. I think Matthew hopes that we in our minds, just as he did in his and, of course, the, the, the hearers of it in the, in the first century, would remember some scriptures from the Old Testament that maybe would come into play as this is being acted out before their eyes. There's any number of texts, most of them are poetic texts that we could look at. Uh, I think, first of all, to, to Isaiah or Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets, they're probably the best known, talking about that time when, when God would rescue Israel, the promises about God rescuing Israel bringing it back to its, uh, to its fruition and away from all the troubles that she was experiencing. And the reference that I think Matthew is, is using here is one that's well known, very well known, and he intends for us to see this through our three-dimensional glasses a little more clearly than we maybe would at, at first glance. So let me show you what I mean. If we look at Matthew 15, verses 30 through 31... It says this. We read this just a while ago, but it'll be up on the screen again. Great, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame and the blind and the cripple and the mute and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. Now, if we look through those 3D glasses... And we remember back to Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, we see this. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Why does Matthew choose these words? Why does he use these words of reference to this rescue of Israel from God's promises in the Old Testament. I think Matthew is underlining his belief that he's shown us so far in his gospel, and our, our belief too, I hope, at this point, as you've been traveling through this journey with us, that the long-awaited time is now coming to pass. As he says, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's happening now. It's happening right before your eyes. The healings are not just signs of special power, but the healings are signs, 3D signs, if you will, of the fact that Jesus is now fulfilling those promises in the Old Testament. No wonder Matthew writes that the people praised the God of Israel. So with your 3D glasses in place, you'll see that at the beginning of the Scripture we looked at today, there's a mountainside talked about again. So many times we look at mountainsides, the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen Jesus go up on a mount to, to speak to this group or heal this group or, or to try to get some rest and relaxation, some prayer time up on the mountainside. This is no different. We're talking about a mountainside here in verse 29. And Isaiah, all through his um, book, 
talks about a mountain, Mount Zion, he says. What we would today call the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, to which the rescued will flock in great numbers. The mountain that these people flock to is Jesus himself, not Jerusalem. And he provides a feast for everyone who has come. So what we have here is really another way of saying what Isaiah 35 said, that this is the time of fulfillment, the time when God's ancient promises to Israel are going to come true. And they're going to come true right before your eyes, he's saying. Think back to the Canaanite woman that, that Walt talked about last week. She was pointing out for us that when God did for Israel what God intended to do for Israel, then the Gentiles would be included in the great feeding story. Even if for the moment they look like dogs under the table licking up the crumbs and the scraps that the children at the table had dropped. So what are we to make of this feeding story? Why does it even matter to us at all? Well, I think the important thing here to remember is Matthew includes this story, this particular story of the feeding of the 4,000 because all or most of the people who are there are Gentiles. And that makes it a sequel to the story about the Canaanite woman from last week. How can we know that? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. We can know it because of Scripture. I've told you so often that uh, you don't look just at the Scripture in front of us in the Gospels, but you check the other Gospels and see if the story is told in another one of the Gospels. And yes, indeedy, it sure is. We'll find in Mark chapter 7, verse 31, in the midst of the story, we read, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Well, what's that got to do with anything, you say? I put a map up here for you, a map of Israel at the time, the first century time of Jesus. Over here on the left, that blue area is the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is the little slit of land that goes down here. Not all of, all of the map, but half of the map, half of the land is Israel. You see at the top a, a little body of water, looks like a, a harp, maybe a kidney. Uh, that's the Sea of Galilee. Everything to the west, to the left of the Sea of Galilee, was basically land that was populated by the Jews. Those were the Jewish believers. On the right-hand side of the Sea of Galilee, and we've looked at this all the way through Matthew, the people on the right-hand side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, were Gentiles. And there's an area here about halfway down called the Decapolis. Decapolis. Decapolis, the word 
the Greek word deca for ten, polis for city. It was made up of ten cities, ten Greek cities that were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the Gospel of Matthew fits in with this quite well when he says that the people praised the God of Israel. If they were Israelites, they wouldn't have said they praised the God of Israel. They would have said they praised their God. But when it says they praised the God of Israel, it must mean to us that these were not Jewish people. But in spite of being Gentiles, these people were healed, just like the Jews had been healed. They were fed, just like the Jews had been fed, and the disciples were used to serve them, just as the disciples had been used to serve the Jewish crowds. So what better way, what better way to teach that Gentiles are just as important as Jews and that Christianity is going to be a worldwide religion for everyone, not just for the nation of Israel. So let's put on our 3D glasses again and look at, I think I have seven lessons here that are new that we could learn from this. I'm sure there's others, but these are, these are the ones that I chose for this particular message. The first lesson is this. We see once again Jesus' divine power. His divine power is displayed again. Now, because only God can create, only God could have multiplied those seven loaves and those few fish even one fold to feed the people, not to mention many thousand fold to feed all those many people. He had created healthy tissue to replace diseased tissue, whole limbs to replace deformed and missing limbs, seeing eyes to replace blinded eyes, and he created a super abundance of food to replace this little bit of food. When the disciples were establishing the church in, in the first century, many miracles were performed by them. We read about those in the book of Acts. Acts, the acts that they did, you know, the miracles that took place. But their miracles were performed in the name and by the power of Jesus Christ. They were his instruments, if you will. Just as we today carry on ministry as instruments of Jesus. We don't really perform miracles. If any miracles happen, they happen because we were allowed to be instruments that would be used uh, by Jesus. But Jesus performed those miracles in his own name and in his own power because he is the source of that power. He didn't heal or deliver or raise the dead or multiply food as an agent of God. He healed and delivered and raised the dead and multiplied 
supplied food as God himself. Jesus was God himself. Jesus had divine power. The second lesson is this. We learn that the goal of ministry, all ministry, is worship. It's worship. Almost all, if, if, if not all, of the multitudes that were in the Decapolis were Gentile people. We already looked at that. And when they saw the magnitude and the, the perfection of Jesus' healing power, they were not only astonished beyond belief, but they praised the God of Israel, it says. I think witnessing such a divine display as this demanded much more than just jaw-dropping awe at what was happening. Wow! Can you believe that? It demanded worship, reverential worship, which those Gentiles were told offered to God as best they knew how. I'd love to know what praised the God of Israel means. I don't know what all happened, but wouldn't it be neat to see what all these people did who didn't know anything about praising the God of Israel, what they did in order to praise Him. Their worship was Jesus' primary goal. It wasn't feeding. It wasn't healing. It wasn't teaching. Jesus' primary goal was their worship. He had unqualified compassion, unqualified to heal their broken bodies. He had unqualified compassion to fill their empty stomachs. But he was infinitely more concerned that through their trust in him as Lord and Savior, that he could rescue their souls and make them citizens of his heavenly kingdom that he was teaching about. You see, the goal of any healing, the goal of any evangelism, is to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I've heard missionaries say for years as they would come to church to, to present uh, you know, what's happening in where, whatever part of the world that they're ministering. And missionaries would say, missions exist where worship doesn't exist. See, if everybody in the world worshipped God, we wouldn't need missionaries. They would be a thing of the past. But as long as there are people out there that don't know, that don't believe, missionaries are essential. The third lesson is this. The story teaches the necessity of relying on divine resources. Now, I've used this term divine resources several times, so I guess I should tell you what, it, what I'm meaning by it. Divine resources to me means those things that only God can provide for us. There's a lot of things we, we can make or we can buy or we can uh, put together But divine resources are those things that only God can give us. Only He 
can give us. And like the disciples, we are most usable to the Lord when we acknowledge that we have a lack of resources, a dearth of resources, I guess, and we turn to Him. Whatever we have in ourselves, however much it might be, however bright or wealthy or, or whatever we are, is never enough to take care of the needs of other people, let alone to do the things that God wants us to do. We have to rely on Him. Acts 1.8 says this, Jesus didn't command His disciples to be His witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, until until he had first promised, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. He equipped them to do what he called them to do. And the big idea for today comes from from this uh, uh, lesson here. We can accomplish nothing of value unless until we rely on His divine resources. Why is that? Well, the why of that is lesson four. Lesson four is this. We learn that God's resources are never diminished, much less exhausted, because God has an infinite capacity to create. He can create things. He didn't need those seven loaves of bread and the fish. He didn't need them to feed the multitudes. He could have just as easily made the food out of nothing, just like he did at creation. There's a word or a phrase, I should say, that's used about creation, and it's called ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. He created it out of nothing. For a number of years, uh, I taught English and I taught biology, kind of a strange mix. But the only reason I majored in those two, I had a double major, is because I found them easy. I mean, I didn't have to study for either ones. They came pretty easy, so that's why we majored in those two. But in biology class, we had that tension, of course, between creationism and evolution. And I thought I had this all figured out. I mean, I I figured that, that God looked out into the expanse of space, and he saw molecules here and atoms there and a little DNA over here and dust here, and he put it all together, and he created what we have, us, and everything around us, the whole universe. And then I realized that wasn't right. When he looked out, there was nothing there. I mean, wrap your brain around that one. There was nothing. There were no molecules. No, He he was the one that created molecules and atoms and DNA and all the other stuff. There was nothing. Nothing. He just spoke it into existence. He created it. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Now, he used the loaves and the fishes so that he could involve his disciples in the process. He had something to teach them, and what he wanted to teach them was that if they turned over everything they had to him, they could trust him with it. 
and he would multiply it. He would use it for their benefit. God's people never lack resources if they trust in him. And if they do the things that he has called them to do. Don't step outside that box. The fifth lesson is this. We learn about the servant's usefulness. Now, as I just said, although the the Lord could work without us, for some crazy reason, He chooses to work through us. He chooses to use us in all that He does. He didn't uh, need the disciples to distribute that food. He could have just made it appear before each one of the people there, made it happen in their little picnic basket, you know. He didn't have to have it distributed by the uh, disciples any more than he needed seven loaves and, and um, fish to, to make food to provide to all those people. He could have done in an instant what it probably took them several hours to do when he involved human beings in the process. But for some reason or other, in his infinite wisdom and mercy, he chooses to use us to spread the gospel message, the message, the good news of the kingdom of God to other people in this community, in this church, throughout the world. He chooses to use us. And in serving others in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we learn as the disciples did, to serve Him. Now, why is that important? That's important because we're going to be serving Him throughout eternity in dimensions that we can't even conceive of today, even with our little 3D glasses on. Sixth lesson is this. We learn the lesson of spiritual investment. When the disciples gave all they had to Jesus and then helped him give it away to other people, they had seven full baskets for themselves. Wow. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, from the Message translation says this, Remember, a stingy planter gets stingy crops. A lavish planter gets lavish crops. Whatever you sow, so shall you reap. And the seventh lesson is this. We learn the lesson of the limitless compassion of Jesus Christ. He has compassion for our needs. He has compassion for your needs, your daily needs, your needs throughout your lifetime, and your needs throughout all of eternity. He has compassion for the Jews and compassion for the Gentiles. He has compassion for the severely afflicted. He has compassion even for those that are just hungry and need a meal. Galatians 6.10 says, also from the message version, right now, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. He's saying, let's take care of one another. If we have needs here, let's put them out on the table and, and, and let's see if we can't among us come up with the things that are necessary, the resources that are necessary to, 
take care of those needs. And then once we've taken care of each other, let's go out to the community of Little River. Take care of Little River. And then to the ends of the world. Our compassion is not measured by our feelings. Our compassion is measured by our giving, how we give to other people. So those are the seven lessons that I jotted down for for this passage. So, so what do they have to do with you and with me? Well, I think there may be at least three applications for us sitting here today. And the first application is this. Faith may be found in unlikely places. Unlikely places. I would have expected strong faith among the people of Israel, those people who had the scriptures of the Old Testament and had all the other benefits that Jewish people had. I would have expected that the last place that strong faith would be exhibited would have been in that completely Gentile country. But there, it's the Canaanite woman who believed and strongly believed, I might add. And it was the people of Galilee, people on the west side, the Jews who didn't believe. I don't think you should ever say, you know, I don't believe that person will ever come to faith. They can't come to faith in Christ. You don't know. You You just can't know. It's often the most unlikely persons who do come to faith in Christ. I mean, think about Saul. Saul, the great persecutor of Christians. He was converted. His name was changed to Paul, and he wrote over half of the New Testament. And he became a missionary, probably the greatest missionary ever, to the Gentile people. It's Paul. And then there's John Newton, the slave trader, the writer of Amazing Grace, that song that we know so well. And he said, John Newton said, I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. If God can save me, he can save anybody. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Second application, I think, is this. Be encouraged to come to Jesus. Be encouraged to come to Him. You may think that you're too sinful to come to Jesus. You may think that Jesus could never really care about you. There's all these other important people. How could He care about you? You may think that, well, if Jesus only knew what I've done, if, if he only knew the things, the dirt and the filth that's in my past. Well, friends, he does. He already knows about it. 
And in every case, you would be completely wrong, entirely wrong. This scripture reassures us that if Gentile dogs can come to Jesus, then you certainly can come to Jesus. And if you've never really, really turned from your sin, I mean really, you may have said the words, you may have prayed the prayer, you may have told other people, but what's happened in your heart? If you've never really come to a trusting faith in Jesus Christ and trusted Him as your Savior, as your rescuer, remember Christmas Eve we talked about this name that was given to Him, Jesus, which means He will save His people, if you've never really trusted in Him as your rescuer and you've never given Him all your cares and your worries and your anxieties, do it today. Do it right now. Change that heart right now. I know we don't often do this, but I'm going to ask, I don't even know who you are. I didn't check before the service. I assume we have some people. But those of you that are on the ministry team, the prayer ministry team, I'd like for you to go ahead and take your places up here. I'd like for you to be here. I'd like for them to know who you are. These are folks that are trained up, that are equipped, that are passionate about praying for other people, for whatever's going on in their lives, for the troubles, for the turmoil, for the hurt, for the broken relationships, for the salvation, they're trained up, and they want to pray with you. So let me just say you can come to them at any time through the rest of the service. The third application is this. Come to Jesus, especially if you're in trouble or you're hurting. There's bound to be some people here today in a crowd of this size that are in trouble and some people that are hurting. I mean sin-sick souls, hearts that are broken. Jesus cares for you. Whatever your problems might be, it doesn't matter what the problem is. There's nothing so bad that he won't care for you. The multitudes that came were hungry. Many of the people were sick. The Canaanite woman had an afflicted daughter. And you know what he did? Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus healed the sick people that were there. And Jesus cured the Canaanite daughter's demon possession. Do you think he would do any less for you? Why do you think he would do any less for you? So put on your 3D glasses and pray, Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. And what you're going to see is this. You're going to see Jesus with his arms reaching out for you.
He's going to say, Vivian, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And he's going to say, I love you. Savannah, I love you. I love you. Casey, I died for you. It was all for you. I came to rescue you, Emily. I came for you. And listen, listen. You can hear him calling, calling to you. Come to me, he says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. You know that gut-wrenching stuff that goes on at night when you're lying in bed by yourself? You can't get to sleep or you wake up and you can't get back to sleep. He's saying, bring that to me. Lay it on me. And I'm going to give you peace. And I'm going to allow you to rest for the first time in a long, long time. Because I love you. Because I died for you. Because I came for one purpose, and that is to rescue you. You. He's calling you right now. Won't you answer his call? This is the day.